This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. Kantar has released its yearly corporate reputation index and Air New Zealand retains its top rating for the ninth consecutive time, followed by Mitre 10 and Pack and Save. These companies apparently rewarded for their boundary pushing, experimentation and impact on both people and the natural environment. Sarah, um, thank you for coming in. Let's talk about Air New Zealand first. Um, obviously a nine-time winner. Why? <laughs> Well, look, credit to them. They clearly have a lot of um, equity in their business in terms of perceptions. New Zealanders love to love in New Zealand, uh, and they have um, they have a, you know a lot of trust and faith from the New Zealand public. I I do believe that you know their their ratings. When you look at the top three rankings, there there's a there's a you know, it's a photo finish, really, um, and Air New Zealand have um, managed to sustain that position. But that really comes down to the fact that they've got um, a lot of equity in their in their corporate reputation, but also they are continually trying to um, to deliver to New Zealanders' needs, and that has been tough. Um, there's no doubt that the conditions that they've been operating have been really, really trying, um, but. You know, they're, they're doing their best to deliver to New Zealanders' needs. I think um, the CEO is quite a standout performer in terms of just appearing and explaining and sort of being someone who helps with the, you know, with the bags when they get busy and things like that. You know, he's got a... Does that play into it at all, do you think? Look, I think any uh, leader who leads from the front and is prepared to front up to the media and try and put some sort of level of explanation to the difficulties that they're facing, they're not necessarily giving excuses but they're really trying to explain to the public and I think that very much helps. Um, what we've seen this year, we, we actually did a little investigation into the leadership elements of corporates, what New Zealanders expect from leading companies because we saw in the last few years that the leadership elements have declined in terms of their, their driver of reputation. Mm. That seems to have come back this year. And when we ask New Zealanders, you know, what makes a leading company, um, they really did point to things like that. Um, you know, leading from the front, certainly um, those businesses that are at the forefront of talking about environmental issues and, you know, what they're doing to alleviate their impact. Um, innovation is really important. Uh, companies that act ethically and are really transparent, um, people who look after their people, you know, uh, being transparent about wage rates and making sure that they can maintain a cost of living. Those are the sorts of things. When it comes to Air New Zealand, I think they're very lucky that they've got somebody who's prepared to, to front up and answer the tough questions. Given everything you've said, I was a little surprised to see Pack and Save so high. Um, you know, the supermarkets have been pinged for their unseemly profit making. Mm. Um, they are, cons you know, they're, they're considered with the, some scepticism by people, and I think their their management haven't actually shown uh, shown or explained, you know, why they've done that. Um, so why are they so high in this listing? Once again, I think um, certainly in the last year post the 
sort of the COVID period where the supermarkets were in the darlings of the the reputation um, index. They they you know delivered to New Zealanders' needs. They were there for them. Um, the following year, there was a big drop in trust, and that was all around the Commerce Commission. What I think you're seeing with um, the likes of Pack and Save is that there is such a focus on cost of living presently. Mm-hmm. You know, people are very much hurting with the inflationary pressures, um, and on a day-to-day basis, they are looking for choice. And pack, they see Pack and Save strongly delivering on their promise, I guess, of lower prices relative to the rest of the category. <laughs> um, it is all relative, yeah. Um, yeah. and you know. New Zealanders do love uh, a good fair price. They also love um, um, a brand that, um, or a, a company that likes to talk straight, and that's what Pack and Save have always done with their communication. Um, there, you know, there is no doubt a sort of a drop in the overall perceptions of the supermarkets from a reputation perspective. But Pack and Save, they relative to the others, they still are seen to be delivering on price. Right, that's interesting. Mm. Right, a 10, um, you know, obviously that's a company that always also does well. Is it the sort of the iconic Kiwiana element of that brand? There is that, I think. Mm. But I think with Mita 10 as well, um, they are delivering on all facets of what they promise. Um, they are certainly um, leading from the front in terms of, you know, how they relate to New Zealanders. Uh, they they are iconic. They've they've done some award-winning uh, advertising, which you know mm. is, means that they're at the forefront of people's minds. But I think the in-store promise and the in-store experience is also one that they deliver on. That's what we're hearing from New Zealanders is when they when they show up. They're not only um, delivering a great customer experience, um, but they're also delivering range and value. So there are there are choices that you make, can have in store. So they just seem to be the full package at the moment. They're one of the few companies that have a, a fully balanced scorecard when it comes to reputation and on those four pillars that we talk about, which is trust, leadership, fairness and responsibility. They seem to be doing all the right things at the moment. Amazing. Um, another big Gainer was New Zealand Post, which is kind of unusual. Why why has that happened? Yes, it's interesting. Um, all the delivery companies, uh, New Zealand Post, uh, Main Freight, and another brand, Freightways, they have all seemed to have um, won over the confidence of New Zealanders. You know, delivery is something that is really important now. You know, we we are as New Zealanders, we're spending a lot more on things that need to be delivered. Um, And these companies seem to be getting it right now, um, improving the way they are offering their services to New Zealanders. And they seem to have, um, they seem to have improved on all of those facets. They've built the trust, they've gained the trust of New Zealanders, which is, I think, a really a good improvement. It is. Um, now, in terms of those that have dropped a lot, um, Fisher and Paykel Healthcare, which is an interesting one for consumers to even consider, really, because it's kind of in the background. Mm. It's not really a consumer-facing much of one, a consumer-facing brand. And Zespri, uh, but you say there's macroeconomic factors playing here. There are macro conditions, and I think we saw that Fisher and Paykel, you know, during uh, the period of, of COVID, was a 
a company that was much more front and centre for people. Mm. They were spending money on, you know, housewares and appliances. Uh, they were also very invested in health and, you know, what was going on in, that, in the world of health. Uh, and Fisher and Paykel Healthcare has performed really well um, from a from a company that seems to have taken a bit of a back step. Uh, we know that, you know, companies that do well um, are those that are really. De- delivering on the day-to-day needs of New Zealanders. So, um, you know, Fisher and Paykel's just taken a bit of a step, a backward step, yeah. but they're still performing very well. They still, from a reputational perspective, have a lot that they can offer. And you think Zespri is to do with the weather, inclement weather? Quite possibly. I mean, we did this piece of research around the time of the cyclone. Um, there were a lot of, um, uh, you know, primary industries that were affected at that time, um, their ability to, you know, sort of do what they do is uh, was impacted. And so, yeah, there's, there's quite possibly that's been impacted from a reputation perspective as well. Just finally, Sarah, um, you know, consumer sentiment, is there something that's come through this year that hasn't come through in years past? I think what we're seeing this year is um, there are two things. One is that New Zealanders want to see business, New Zealand business, really leading from the forefront in terms of their um, their actions around, you know, helping with the planet. Yeah. Um, you know, they want to know that you're looking after people and planet. Um, and that has really come through from a, from a leadership perspective. The other one is that, you know, Corporates that can deliver on value, a value proposition, um, and really help New Zealanders through this cost of living time, that is very critical in the short term. It will continue in the long term as well. But what we've observed is that those brands that really do offer choice um, and affordability are going to fare a bit better this year. Sarah, thanks so much. You're welcome. A boat founder and managing director Janelle Ellis identified a gap in New Zealand's healthcare system for a premium private home care service. Janelle joins me now to talk about her business abode and plans for expansion. Welcome, Janelle. Thank you. So it's nice to be here. Oh, thank you for coming here. <laughs> so why don't you tell me a wee bit about abode and sort of how you got started? Sure. So abode was has been a an idea of mine for a very long time. Uh, pre kind of marriage and kids and everything Uh, and the reason sort of I started to think about a company like this and and identifying the gap in the market was my grandmother living in Wellington and all of her children living in either the upper North Island or overseas and uh, just not having that company that we could contact and that person that we could rely on to visit her weekly and just give her that sort of add to her quality of life and take her out for a drive or do something with her rather than just visits at home. So that was where the sort of passion began and then I took the leap when I had just had my second child and just reached out to actually my husband's clients, <laughs> he's in photography, and um, then realised that there was actually quite a demand out there for people wanting help with their family members. And I was a private nurse for a gentleman for two years. And through that, I met a whole lot of the multidisciplinary team at Middlemore Hospital. And they then connected me with other jobs and it just kind of grew from there. 
Well, I'm glad you brought up the um, the hospital system because how does the private and the public sort of work together, I suppose? Do they work together or do they? is there too much competition? I, I don't think it's competition. I, they just don't work together at the moment, but it would be great to see that changing. I think that people deciding on or having more choice over where their care is provided, when and how um, and by who, takes a lot of pressure off the public system. So... Yeah, I mean, the public system is great, the carers are great, it's just so overrun that it's everyone's time poor and visits get missed and visits are very short. Um, so what we're doing is by having our clients pay us privately, they're getting more say over how long we're there for, how often we visit, when we visit and who visits, but they're not getting that assistance from the DHB financially so it would be great to see them work together because we are taking some pressure away from that system. And um, tell me about some of the challenges you face setting up this business. Challenges, well, sort of firstly would be that I'm actually a nurse, not a business owner. Well, I am a business owner now, but um, I don't have a business background. So that's been a challenge the whole way along is just learning and growing. But it's been incredibly fun and rewarding and, um, yeah, really proud of what I've built so far. And, um, yeah, I mean, challenges still currently would be staffing is finding um, the right staff for the jobs and just, um, yeah, just getting personalities matched and between qualified staff and some staff that aren't qualified but are just incredibly passionate about caregiving. Um, yeah, that would probably be the biggest challenge is staffing. Yeah. And staffing, are you competing with DHBs and the, the public system for staff? No, I think... I th- no, I would say we probably get a, a different um, sort of group of candidates applying for our jobs. We do get some uh, applications from retirement villages uh, for staff that maybe want to reduce down hours or have a bit more say over how what they're working, where they're working. Um, yeah. And um, previously you sort of, your nursing and your caregiving was offered separately. What was the reason for rolling them together? So we were finding that, especially with our palliative care jobs uh, and also with our caregiving jobs, we were getting a lot of, um, there was just a team approach. So our nurses and our caregivers were working really closely together and also the the goal of expanding abode outside of Auckland uh, was just sort of having two businesses didn't make sense anymore so we uh, called it abode and brought the two together. Well, you yeah. better tell me a wee bit about those expansion plans as well. <laughs> yeah, so we're looking to, hopefully, we're, we're looking to establish a boat in Auckland this year mm-hmm. um, and get really good systems and processes in place um, and then look to move outside of Auckland within the next year. And um, yeah. is there sort of somewhere that's top on your list? Do you want to go north or south? Initially, I mean, we, we get in quite we get actually quite a lot of inquiry from Wellington. Um, however, initially, I think just to sort of test it out <laughs> and be close to home, we'd probably look at going somewhere like Hamilton mm-hmm. um, and then go from there. Yeah. And um, where do you see the company in sort of five years' time? Nationwide. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> That's the hope. <laughs> That's the goal. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, best of luck. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. 
This week's Shoeshine covers Wakatu Incorporation, which was set up in 1977 as a whānau-owned business at the top of the South Island. William Mace joins me now to discuss its reasons for being. So what is the Wakatu Incorporation? Hi Fiona. So Wakatu Incorporation is basically a product of um, the tenths land deal that was done between local Māori with customary land rights uh, in the 1830s with the New Zealand Company, which we all know was a um, you know a, a settler company that that brought over settlers from the other side of the world, and they made a deal with local Māori that um, they would set aside 155,000 acres for settlement. And the Māori said, you know, obviously there were some negotiations, but they said, yes, that, that, would be, that would be fine, as long as you set aside a tenth of that land um, for use of Māori, of, of us. Um, and we also get to retain our land that we're occupying and our urupa, our cemeteries and all sorts. So that was a, you know, it was a pretty standard deal. Um, then, you know, a year later, the Treaty of Waitangi was signed, the Crown came in and sort of changed everything, but it was determined that those, that that deal was done on good terms, equitable terms, as they say, and so it stood. Um, and it's probably not a surprise that the deal wasn't kept to. Um, and so, you know, basically, the land, you know, uh, I think there's only about two or three percent of the land um, that was supposed to be kept aside was was kept aside for local Māori. So it's been 180 odd years since then, and. The local Māori there have been fighting ever since. In 1977, as you say, they incorporated Wakatū Incorporation when the government, um, uh, I suppose, allowed them or, or or gave them a pathway to putting this land, bringing it out of Crown Trust into uh, another um, trust or incorporation uh, structure. And they chose incorporation. The customary landowners and their descendants took... Um, uh, you know, shares or ownership within the incorporation, and that's kind of how that tenths holding has manifested um, now into the modern age. Um, but there's still an ongoing court is. case, isn't there? Yeah, and there, there, there has been for some decades. You know, it really has made some headway through the courts. In 2017, there was a Supreme Court decision which, um, which said that the government did owe a fiduciary duty to have kept those tenths aside. Um, obviously, after the treaty came in, that it was up to the Crown rather than the New Zealand Company to, to do that, and they didn't do it. So that's been five, six years now since that um, that judgment. The They're going back into court. Um, the, the Supreme Court kicked that back down to the High Court to talk about the actual remedies that... Um, that Wakatu can expect from this. Um, you know, you would think that it might be straightforward from here, but obviously it's not. They're back in the courts and, and the government's uh, expecting to spend a lot more money this year on it. So that's being heard in August, is that right? Um, yep. What could the remedies be? Um, it's difficult to know. I, I did ask directly um, CEO Karensa Johnston when I was down in Nelson recently, and you know they're very focused on the land. Um, as you will know, a lot of iwi organisations, you know, the Māori worldview is based around the land, the whenua. So they're very, very keen to see the land given back. Um, obviously, in many instances, they're, they're realistic that won't be possible if it's passed into private hands, for instance. Um, that's a whole other can of worms. They, there's obviously a lot of crown land though that could potentially be handed over, um, but you know they're not able to count their chickens on that, and so there's obviously compensation, uh, monetary compensation as well. 
um, but they're really not sure. They're not keen to enunciate exactly what they might expect and how that might, you know, propel their forward their sort of their business uh, in the future, which has obviously been bubbling away since 1977 as well, the, the businesses of, in, of the incorporation. So I was going to ask that next. Um, what what does it do with the land and resources it's got? Yeah, well, um, there is a significant property business. Um, there are, There's property development. There's also land, which is um, a lot of it's under, about a third of it's under perpetual lease um, to leases in the area, um, which actually makes it quite difficult for them to develop it commercially um i think you know very extended sort of renewal periods and uh extended sort of rate um rental rate uh, renewals and and uh, increases or decreases and so that's one of the issues um so but they do have a you know um a, a 480 odd million asset base i think i might need to you check the story, read the story for that particular figure, but it's more than 400 million. So there's that asset base. The actual most of the revenue comes out of um, their Kono business, which is food, food and beverages. Um, you might be familiar with Tohu Wines, Kono Wines. Um, and that business has gone great guns, hasn't it? it? It has, yeah. I mean, Tohu was about 1998. Um, you know, it was a it was. I mean, they, they say it's the, the first Māori vineyard uh, in the world, and uh, I didn't find any others that were, that were um, earlier than that. And it was really was a, uh, a pioneer, and I, think, I feel like the incorporation has been a pioneer in the commercial world um, uh, since it was incorporated. And so just to go in and, and, you know, I felt it was a good story to go in and look at what they're doing Currently, some changes that they're making, and then obviously what they're looking to do with the tents, and and I think it's important for the region and for the country to know what Wakatu might be doing in the future, given that you know there's potentially millions of resources about to end up in in their hands. Why have they recently exited their muscle business? Yeah, the the muscle business was interesting. Um, just in the past few months, uh, well, at the start of this year, they they um, announced that they had sold that to Tallies. Uh, which is obviously another big Nelson Tasman region employer. Um, so when I asked Karenza about this um, and the chair Johnny McGregor, you know they mentioned they'd had a pretty bad year with the seafood through COVID or a couple of years, and it's sort of content it's continuing basically. Even though you know they kept mentioning that they're not we're not through COVID yet, staffing difficulties, um, freight costs and logistics going way higher, and they just they hadn't reached that sort of point say of like Tally's so scale um, batters. Or, or Sanford's where they could ride through those things um, you know and it, it didn't really seem as much of a priority for them as the food and, or sorry as the beverages which they've doubled down on and they're going to be reinvesting but they also have a another business segment so they have Kono, they have Whenua land and then Owater which is sort of nascent but it's it's about um that value add for food and, and beverages and sort of creating, I suppose, the wellness angle and branding. And um, they are still looking at mussels. There's a kopa kopa mussel, which is a, a native mussel, which um, is less of a commodity. That was another reason why they got out of the, 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 the green shell mussels, because it was more of a commodity product, whereas this they, they see that they can uh, market it and, and base it more on the provenance, um, which is what they're doing with their wine and their beer as well. So just finally, well, um, the incorporation has a new chair as well. What can you say about him? Yeah, Johnny, um, uh, he's a great guy. We, 
he, he sort of come from a, um, a, a teaching background and up through sort of public policy. Um, but more recently, he's been uh, involved in trade and it sort of chimed with what he's doing with Waka um, He's on the MFATS um, Te Taumata board, which um, helped MFAT negotiate the EU free trade agreement recently, which is a really interesting piece of work. Actually has a, uh, a an indigenous or a Māori um, chapter within that free trade agreement, which I think only that and the UK one have. Um, and so, you know, he sort of has this worldly vision of how Wakatu can kind of slot into that, that um, progressive trade agenda that places like the EU or the UK or the States have, or China even, um, they are wanting to create connections with, not just with the New Zealand government and the Crown, but with Indigenous communities, and they understand that those communities can sometimes be separate from the official sort of gov- government. But it's it's an interdependent thing, which he's really keen on, and, and I also asked him about when these resources come to the incorporation, you know, how can they make sure that they benefit the entire region? Because, uh, you know, it's going to be a huge lot of resources. And so they have been working on intergenerational plans with the regional council and central government and the local council, um, together with other iwi, to try and make sure that, you know, that everyone gets in on this rising tide. All right. Well, thanks very much, Will Mace. Thanks. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Carl Johnston's work spans the creative, cultural and commercial worlds and his career credits include Te Papa Tongarewa, the New Zealand Māori Arts and Crafts Institute as well as being creative director for the New Zealand Pavilion at the World Expo in Dubai 2020. Seven years ago he founded a design and creative enterprise called Homi which encapsulates his holistic approach to creating all kinds of culture that helps us to better understand people and place. Kia ora, Carl. Kia ora. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about, let's go back to the beginning, about your background and you know, where you grew up and, and sort of how you got into the creative field. Oh, um, Gisborne's home for me and um, it'll always be home. It's where you know, my family and iwi have been for obviously many, many generations and so being able to separate yourself from context is kind of a, I guess, a foundation of um, how we work and so for me I always reflect back and on Tūranga, on Gisborne, and, and the, the things that I guess um, started to construct my reality, my way of seeing the world. And really Gisborne is at its simplest uh, defined by its relationship to the east. You know, so the sun has a, a really powerful impact in, the, in our reality and in our material culture and our arts through time. Uh, so we have this saying that says rukui te pō, rukui te ao, which is to delve into the, into the night, which is another kind of proxy or metaphor for the unconscious state, and then re-emerge back into the light. And so what comes with that in, in a Gisman context and all its beauty is a, is a binary relationship between light and dark, and actually societally a relationship that uh, probably could be characterised as binary as well. Mm-hmm. Now that's both interesting and also problematic. And so those sort of foundational environmental factors have shaped a lot of the way I see the world and kind of how I've gone on through my career working with the, in the many guises and with the many people and shaping a kind of, uh, I guess, casting more shadow and understanding the space that sits between those binary positions. 
um, you know, an example of that in Gisborne, something that I became more and more aware of as I, um, particularly when I moved to Auckland to go to university art school, uh, is the the way that we uh, defined culture was often through class structures rather than through the dynamism of culture, which I would say is more about the way we define our place in the world through constructs and things that we build intergenerationally to uh, create mechanisms and systems for understanding how to move through life through lived experience in the most efficient way. And so those learnings, I guess, from growing up in Gisborne, um, societally, environmentally and culturally have shaped a lot of what I then went on to do. Tell, tell me a bit about Ruafetu and how that works. Yeah, so um, Ruafetu is a charitable trust that Homi um, set up last year. Uh, we took our first intake of carvers um, um, just over six months ago. Uh, it's, I guess its focus, its purpose is in around the perpetuation, the perpetuity, the, the, the thrivability of Māori arts, crafts and therefore culture. And again, it's uh, like Homi Ruafetu, I mean they're indivisible I guess, but uh, like Homi Ruafetu's aspirations are to really question the systems and the frameworks we uh, we work in, uh, not uh, to be uh, self-congratulatory or, or just for the purpose of provocation, but to actually recalibrate them and put them back into pieces that uh, actually fit our mission uh, more closely and allow us to understand what value really looks like, um, because value has so many various facets to it. And Ruafetu itself started with a, you know, with the, um, as I said, with the carving school, but it'll expand over time uh, to all expressions of life, um, you know, all expressions of art. Uh, it has a research agenda. It has a, um, a, a, a avid interest in and around Walker. Um, the other trustee alongside me is James Edwetter, who's. Uh, to have it from Heck Busby um, in, in the Walker building, or Tarai Walker um, process. He worked for Heck for, I think, around 15 years. Um, but again, it's not about whether it's a Fari or Walker, but it's about how do we actually engender a connectivity back to nature. Uh, today, we often talk about nature as something that sits separate from humanity. But, you know, nature's inextricably bound to who we are. Uh, we can't exist, even in an urban context, without an understanding of our relationships, responsibilities with the natural world. What are some examples of, of situations that you and work that you've done that you feel really sort of um, hits, the, hits the button of what you're trying to achieve? Yeah, look, I think there's, um, there's a lot of different examples that have different success factors. Mm. Um, my sense is that as a business wouldn't, we're probably never going to say that was a perfect outcome because we're so critical of what the potential could be from each learning. But I think going back to your earlier point about uh, World Expo, um, and I have to really acknowledge um, Te Awatupu and the Wanganui Iwi, Atihau Nui Apaparangi for, this, uh, for their commitment and partnership in that process. You know, we took a story to the, to the world, um, to Dubai, uh, which was fundamentally about the river um, and the inextricability of the river from the people. It was a story that was about identity. Uh, it was a story that in many ways uh, the world needs but may not have been ready for. Um, its success I think was in the partnerships. It was more in the intangibles than the actual output of the of the, of the um, pavilion itself while it was successful in its own way but this idea, this philosophy that um, you know the, the 
founding proposition or axiom from the river, kōo te awa, kō te awa, kō awa, I am the river, the river is me. So understanding that thrivability comes out of a space of understand or out of humility and out of understanding your connectivity to to nature and your responsibilities for it. You know, there's a big difference between the concept of a natural resource uh, and a living ancestor. You know, and so the Wanganui River is a as a living entity in its own right with the rights accorded to it of a human. There's a is a is a is a fascinating proposition and uh, the again the foresight and willingness and uh, care that uh, Te Awatupua put in being part of that was was what I would call a real success measure. I think the other one for me is less about a project um, because I think everything w- what we have worked out as a as a as a group of uh, individuals within Homi is that <clears throat> we're in one way the biggest project, you know, and actually that the the learning and growth of each of our individuals has been probably uh, our most successful project, you know, where we've I've actually seen in every single instance with every single pe- person that I work with uh, this journey uh, of going through those stages of vulnerability, of fear, uh, of discomfort, in arriving at a point of wanting more, you know, and so I think probably as a project, Homie itself is probably the only one that I can actually say hand on heart uh, continues to be an ongoing success, albeit that I feel like we continue to reimagine who we are every day. Uh, Work which, in progress. Yeah, which is not necessarily the greatest business model, but you know we do we do okay, and um, and and we're growing, and we're continuing to enable, um, you know, the various. Um, ancillary opportunities like Ruafetu. Ruafetu will go on. Ruafetu is, um, you know, it's it's here forever. You know, that's our view. We'll continue to invest and ensure its um, perpetuity. Um, you know, we, we are looking and wanting to move more and more into conversations with uh, private sector around partnerships. We're not interested in philanthropy. You know, philanthropy is not um, the value conversation we want to have. For example, um, we're looking for how do we have mutual, how do we create mutual value in partnerships? How does the, much like the carvers going on, you know, the carving, a lot of people see carving as the art form in wood. Uh, We see it as about history making, about record keeping, about intergenerational well-being. Um, And so having those conversations in an ongoing way and getting past this, um, this way of diminishing it to um, fluffy creative speak, you know, because it's easy, and I understand even the way I articulate that, you know, you you can sometimes go, oh yeah, but how does that actually have resonance to me? How does it have resonance to what I do in in, in the corporate world? Probably what I'd say to that is that you know the the arts are, um, and and you can look back through history and any culture you like, they're reflections of life and. You know, if you look back into the kind of the Medici space, for example, in uh, Quattrocento and Renaissance Europe, you know, they knew that that time that the influence would come through the way we articulated our responses to the world and to the to the to the kind of the tensions and pressures of the world. So, understanding the place of creativity uh, in business is actually, uh, I guess, a fundamental challenge that I'd see moving forward, and something that. You know, many countries are uh, embracing, but not as a nice to have, but a more of a, a critical to success. Mm-hmm. Well, kia ora, Carl. Thanks very much for giving us an insight into your co-papa. Thank you, kia ora. 
perennial issue of who is an employee, a contractor, an intern or anything else continues to be examined by our employment authorities. Today's case I'm discussing with Young Hunter Lawyers Senior Associate Jared Elwell looks at whether interns on long practicums are in fact employees or not. Hi Gerard, now can you tell us about this case please? Hi, Dita. Uh, yes, I, I thought a very interesting one. So this is a case that was heard in the Employment Relations Authority June last year, and the decision came out in April this year. So it's quite a recent decision. And it's the Association of Professionals and Executive Employees Incorporated, which is a union uh, abbreviated to APEX, and uh, Melanie Govender as the intern. So the claim was that these interns who were doing postgraduate study and required to complete 1500 hours at least of supervised practice within the ministry to become qualified educational psychologists. The argument was that they were workers, they were employees as opposed to interns and being trained. Right, so is there a large difference in pay between interns and employees? Well, this is an interesting one because obviously we have this concept of internship as being either unpaid or um, sort of a, a token, tokenly rewarded. But in these cases, the students actually receive scholarships of $25,000 from the ministry. And then that was meant to cover their, their expenses. But the ministry was quite adamant that they were not employees and that um, they were not being uh, not entitled to wages or salary during this period. Uh, what didn't help the ministry and its arguments was in their collective agreement is they actually had a clause for intern psychologists and a, and a pay rate. And that was what the union focused on and said, well, these interns are effectively performing valuable tasks for the ministry. And you even have a pay rate set out. And the ministry's defence was that was for their existing staff who were deciding to upskill. But it certainly didn't help their argument and the salary for that wasn't great, uh, it wasn't high probably in the context of what we might expect currently, but it was about $47,000 and that did exceed the amount of the uh, scholarship if that was prorated. Pro so it was a slightly higher amount. Um, they were entitled to approximately $5,000 more were they to be classified as employees plus the other benefits that come with that of KiwiSaver and annual leave and sick leave, none, none of which uh, accrued for them under their arrangement. So although this arrangement has possibly been in place for quite a while, this young person, I shouldn't say she's young, I don't know, but this person, Melanie, decided, no, this is, this is just not going to stand, I can't afford to live on this. Yes, and this is very much an example of a test case where there's probably quite a lot of people behind the scenes who are, who are unhappy with the arrangement. And I remember being approached years ago by someone in a similar situation, and I wasn't able to help them uh, as much as I, I could now with this case having come out. But uh, yeah, just a sort of a, a, a little bit of discontent around the amount of work expected, the nature of the work and the fact that they weren't being treated as employees and yet there were people working alongside them doing essentially the same tasks that were classified as employees. So it's it's a, um, in, one, in one sense, it's a reminder that it's very complicated if you have two classes of, of workers within the same organisation because you immediately open yourself up to a direct comparison and that, that was the comparison made uh, by the decision that saying that well, essentially they were doing the same tasks and there was already a category and an, an award rate, a salary for people being intern psychologists and therefore that should have applied to these student interns. 
On the face of it, this doesn't seem to be like a Gloria Vale case, but Gloria Vale looked at sort of a similar issue, didn't it, in terms of volunteers, um, volunteers as opposed to employees? Yeah, and the reason I thought this case was interesting is it's another sort of landmark in the movement towards narrowing the opportunities for organisations to engage people and not treat them as employees. So Gloria Vale was one, obviously a really high profile one. Uh, we had the Postie case uh, a few years ago where availability was treated as work um, and the requirement to, to be available for overtime there. Uh, we've had the sleepover cases where sleeping over and being on call is regarded as work. So there's there's been a, a real narrowing of the options for engaging people, having them do tasks for you that are unpaid, especially if there's business, if it's a business and it's trying to make a profit and you're contributing some way to that. Obviously the ministry is not a not a business per se, but it's an organization with funding and that funding is related to its tasks. So the decision made here by the authority was that the tasks were of benefit to the ministry. They, they weren't simply providing a training opportunity for the interns. Uh, conversely, the ministry argued that what they did was of very little benefit and they effectively created work for them uh, to fulfil their hours. But this argument didn't really wash because the evidence given, and there were a number of people giving evidence on both sides, and the evidence given seemed to be in favour of the fact that they were doing real work, they had real cases, and these were referrals from schools, and they were helping children and their families. The ministry raised a sort of technical argument around the referral process and who they worked with, but it just it didn't seem to wash, and it didn't, didn't seem to stack up with the fact that uh, they were only being trained as opposed to doing uh, work that was beneficial for the ministry meeting its objectives. This really does have wide ramifications, doesn't it? There's uh, quite a lot of a use of in interns. I don't know how they're all paid, but... Huge ramifications, and they sort of cut both ways in, in, in some sense. In, in this example, obviously, and I know you get this all the time, but each each case in employment is decided on, it, on the specific facts, so it's not necessarily extrapolatable to to any case of an intern and the the, fa the facts will be looked at quite closely before a decision's made but the essential test remains and the fundamental test which is getting applied more and more is what is the real nature of the relationship between the parties is someone controlling the other person's hours and their tasks and in return, is that person providing a, a benefit to the organisation by either doing something that generates profit or uh, alleviates a task that someone else would need, need to be paid to do? So that's it's it's very much a, a shift, as I said, from perhaps uh, historically. And also, it's, it's something that not many of the students or interns may have challenged previously, and there might have only been a small percentage of them. People have just accepted, oh, this is the way it is, and, and, and this is the way it goes. But yeah, there, there really is uh, wider implications in terms of having interns and how they're managed and whether you should be treating them as employees or not. Gerard, thank you very much for talking to MBR. Thanks, Dita. Thanks for the opportunity. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz.